Well, if you would uh, take out your Bibles, let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we'll be looking today at verses 1 through 11. So, John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, water jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word a recognizable passage to us and yet filled with so much, so much. Pray, O God, that you would be with this servant, that I could do justice to this passage, and that we may be greatly encouraged, that we would grow in our knowledge and our love for our Savior Jesus. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the Gospel of John, the writer is, reports on the miracles of Jesus by calling them signs. He calls them signs. And our present text, for instance, is the first sign which Jesus performed. Now, signs are used to point to something. We put signs out in the parking lot so that visitors can find their way into the building so that they don't get lost, they don't go somewhere else. It points them into our building. There are also street signs. There are signs which indicate the speed limit. Some of us ignore those. Some of us pay close attention to those. There are signs which give the names of the streets. So you know what street that you're on. A sign points to something beyond itself. A sign points 
to something beyond itself. In John's Gospel, the signs point to the glory of Jesus Christ and the need to believe in Him. That's the purpose of the signs, to point to Christ. They are part of what we might describe as the outward call. God works through His Word and Spirit. Our hearts are inwardly transformed, but outwardly we perceive the truth. And so these signs were given so that those who experienced the signs, those who were witnesses to these signs, may believe in the one that they're pointing to, namely Jesus Christ. Now, in order to orient ourselves further to our passage, we should note that the next three chapters, that is chapters 2, 3, and 4, present something of a transition. A transition from the old covenant to the new. They express what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so the old purifications, the ceremonial washings, and the cleansing traditions were being replaced by the celebratory wine of the kingdom of God. The old temple where the sacrifices were given, was being replaced by the new risen Lord, who is the true Lamb of God and the temple of God. Mankind is born of water. That is, we are physically born, but there is a need to be born of the Spirit for a new birth. We must be born again. And the wind blows as it wishes, and so it is with the Spirit, and those who are born again of the Spirit. The water of Jacob's well, where generations of people had come and drawn water to water their flocks, to quench their thirst, was being, is, is now contrasted against the living water found only in Christ. And the worship of God, which had been geographically focused, was on Mount Zion in the temple, was now replaced with worship in spirit and truth. And so we see in these next few chapters, uh, John is systematically presenting these themes so that we might see that the promises of God have become a reality in Jesus Christ. And that we should believe in Him. We should trust and rest in Christ. And that's his purpose. And so chapter 2 presents Jesus' first public miracle, or perhaps you might actually call it a semi-public miracle. Because it seems at the very least it's the disciples and and the servants who were the only ones aware of what was actually taking place. Uh, Perhaps Mary as well. This sign of turning water into wine, John insists, is so that people might be convinced that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. That He is the Messiah and that we are to trust in Him. And so these verses before us are intended to increase our faith. For John is writing not to those who experienced a sign. He is writing to those who hadn't experienced a sign. In fact, these words are written with you and me in mind. That we too might believe. 
Now, although these verses are theologically rich and have numerous depths to which we can plumb and gain understanding, we should also keep in mind that this doesn't change the fact that these are actual historic events. Don't miss this important point. John is not simply recording for us stories which have analogies attached to them. He is also recording actual historic events. Jesus turned water into wine in real time and space. In fact, there is no good, no good reason to, uh, to understand these as anything other than actual historic events. John is, is giving us theology. This is certain. But he also wants us to, to see the larger connections to the kingdom. But he is recording history for us. And so we need to understand both of those uh, things together. And so uh, with that orienting our thinking a bit, let's dive into our text. Uh, We begin with John informing us of a wedding in Cana in Galilee. That's on the third day, it says. That that is to say that three days after Jesus had gained Philip, Nathanael, as his disciples. Cana, you might recall, was Nathanael's hometown. We are also told in the text that Jesus' mother was there and he and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, we are not told why Jesus' mother is at this particular wedding. It it seems that even that she wasn't a guest necessarily. Verse 1 tells us that she was there, but verse 2 informs us that Jesus and his disciples were invited. And if if she's not a guest then what is she doing there? Well, it may be that Mary was an attendant at the wedding, or to put it in our modern terminology, she worked for the caterer. And if this is the case, this may explain why she was aware of the shortage of wine and was was concerned about it. Now, we don't know who the bride and groom were at this wedding. They're anonymous to us, but it is possible they were relatives or close family friends of Jesus' family. Mary's attitude in asking Jesus to do something about the wine having run out may suggest some familial concerns. Perhaps Mary was involved in organizing the catering of the meal. And, And by the way, typically it was the groom's family who was in charge of the celebrations at a wedding. It was the groom's family who had to put the party on, as it were. And so Mary may have been a relative of the bridegroom. Whatever the case may be, Mary is present at the wedding, and Jesus and his disciples were invited as guests. Now, Jesus accepting the invitation does illustrate another important point, and that is that Jesus was not an ascetic. He was not a hermit. He wasn't like those in the, in the Qumran community. And the marriage ordinance, which is inherent to creation, was an event which Jesus very much approved of. And so, and, you know, his, and his attendance at the wedding shows this. And, and by the way, this is also, again, where he performs his first public miracle, the sign. More than that, it's also a hint of Jesus' relationship to his, his bride, the church. The wedding celebrations in the first century in Judea were lengthy affairs. They, they weren't like ours where you, you, know, you have a wedding and then you know, maybe a few hours later you have a, you know, a, a celebration of sorts and then it's all over, right? They, they would go on for a week, perhaps. It was a long affair. 
One commentator said that the wedding itself would typically occur on a Wednesday, and the celebrations could go on for days afterwards. And at the feast, the bride and the groom would be treated like a king and a queen. And again, it was the groom's family who was responsible for the festivities. They had to ensure that everything ran smoothly, and that, they, that everyone had an enjoyable time. It's here that our modern sensibilities create something of a blind spot for us. For to run out of wine at such a celebration would result in terrible embarrassment. Terrible embarrassment. It could even open the groom up to a lawsuit from the relatives of the bride if they were aggrieved by what had occurred. You simply could not run out of the main drink of feasting. You could not run out of this. This is, this is something that, you know, in our modern day, if, if that happens, well, you know, it happens. These things happen and we just move on. That's not the way it was here. This was very, very serious. And so what was required, what was required for this celebration was wine. The word used is oinos. Now, we should note that this is, this is not, oinos is not grape juice. This is not generic fruit of the vine. It's a, actually a different term. The idea that what was really served was just grape juice has, has no merit in, understanding, uh, in any understanding of the context of the passage and also in the context of a nation whose ag- agricultural tradition was so committed to viticulture, that is, uh, the, the cultivation of grapevines. It's, it would be so foreign for them. Now, this is not generic fruit of the vine. This is wine, which the Psalms tell us gladden the hearts of men. This was the drink of feasting and celebrating. And in the, in the Jewish mind, wine was a symbol of joy and of celebration. There, can be, there cannot be rejoicing without wine. And so the running out of wine in such a context would be a huge cultural problem. And so as we read... The wine jars had run dry, which perhaps symbolically point us to the barrenness of the nation. Now, how it came to happen that the wedding ran out of wine is not told to us. We don't know why this happened, but whatever the reason is, Mary turned to her son Jesus for a solution, and all she simply says to him is, They have no wine. They have no wine. Now, we should understand something about Mary's statement. Mary is not simply telling a sad story or passing on information to Jesus. This is not, uh, oh, isn't this terrible? They ran out of wine. Oh, yeah, that's really bad. This is, that, that's not what she's She's not just simply passing on information. We might wonder, though, what was she expecting? Was she expecting a miracle from Jesus? Well, certainly, Mary remembered the words of the, uh, the angel Gabriel when she became pregnant with Jesus. But how did she propose that Jesus solve the problem at hand? Calvin, in commenting on this text, doubted whether Mary expected anything uh, from her son in particular, since he had not yet performed any miracles. 
Remember, this is the first. This is the first sign. Perhaps, uh, Calvin says, she hoped he might give an exhortation to the guests to prevent any uneasiness among them, relieve some of the shame of the bridegroom. What level of expectation Mary had is not known, but certainly she was hoping that her son would aid in the situation. The situation is very bad. She turns to Jesus, please do something. Right. They have no wine. Please do something. But it's here that Jesus gives an unexpected response. Remember, she says, they have no wine. And he responds, in, in, at least in, uh, to our modern ears, very unexpectedly. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Has it ever struck you a strange response? To our modern ears, this sounds, frankly, discourteous and downright rude. But in the context, woman, first of all, the term just saying woman is is very courteous. Uh, Jesus is not being discourteous. Although, typically, uh, this would would not be how a son would address his much-loved mother. But this is how Jesus would typically uh, respond. This is not, though, a term of endearment. Uh, D.A. Carson suggests that perhaps the the American term ma'am best captures the idea present in the term, except, as he notes, quote, well-brought-up children in the South address their mothers with that term, and that is precisely how the term does not function on Jesus' lips. And here's the point. Mary, though, must no longer view Jesus as merely her son. She needed to begin to see him more and more for who he really is, her Lord. There's a number of transitions that are taking place here. We we began with that, and there's a transition here, even in, in the family. And so this address is thoroughly courteous, though though not necessarily endearing when he addresses her as woman. And then we have this statement from Jesus, what does this have to do with me? Now, this actually reflects a Hebrew and Aramaic idiom. When somebody was being asked to get involved in a manner of which they had not previously been involved in, they may say this, what to me and to you? That's literally what it is. What, What to me and to you? In other words, how am I involved in your business? That's the question. Again, this is not rude, this is not hostile, but rather it's disengaged. In giving this light rebuke, Jesus may have been distancing himself from any human advice, agenda, or manipulation. It may also be that Jesus wanted Mary to consider the deeper implications of that question and not simply the matter at hand. Remember, Mary wants Jesus to get involved and sort out a cultural problem. They've run out of wine. And Jesus would get involved, but he would only get involved as he saw fit. Not because she was his mother. This is, by the way, a far cry from those who hold that Mary holds some sort of mediatorial place, demanding of her son to do things, even in spiritual matters. 
Mary, like must, like every other person, come to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. She must trust and rest upon her Messiah, the only mediator between God and men. She too must live by faith. And so her prerogatives of motherhood were coming to an end. In addition, his mother and his disciples too must see the deeper implications of what he was about to do. What does this wedding feast have to do with Jesus? Remember, this is, again, this is where the first sign occurs at. This is a wedding feast. What does this have to do with Jesus? How does solving the problem of wine point to the kingdom? What does this have to do with Jesus? Well, everything, it turns out. And so in a sense, there is a distancing, but there's also an embracing of the issue at hand. Now, the reason for the distance between Jesus and his mother must also be seen in light of the cross. His hour had not yet come, which in the larger context typically referred to his death. When he says, my hour has not yet come, usually he was referring to the cross which was coming. That's the hour. The hour was coming when Jesus, the Son of God, would die on the cross for sinners. He would make full payment for sin. But that hour had not yet come. But then again, that's only a part of the picture. It's only part of the picture. Jesus was to accomplish a task which had been entrusted to him by the Father, every detail of which had been established by his eternal decree. Although the gospel account is the movement toward the cross and toward the glory of Jesus Christ, it is not the case that the earthly ministry of Jesus was unimportant or or merely preparation for that. No, every part of the ministry of Christ anticipates the glory of Jesus at the cross and the glory of the kingdom. This is why John reports on this first sign that Jesus performed. Because his disciples witnessed his glory and they believed in him. But we need to ask this question. How does the death and resurrection of Jesus relate to a lack of wine at a wedding? Maybe you're thinking, what, what is the connection here? How does this all, how does this all fit together? And why does Jesus make a connection like that? Remember how Jesus said at the Passover meal when he established the Lord's Supper? Uh, Mark chapter 14 would be an example. It's in, in all of the synoptics though. But he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in new in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to drink that cup with you until the, coming, the full coming of the kingdom. Now what is the occasion in which Jesus refers to in Mark chapter 14 when he will drink that cup with his people? It's a wedding feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Notice that Mary, as she laid out the need for more wine, she had laid it out in rather mundane terms. She says, we have no more wine. But, but Jesus, as he often does, took her words and pressed in them the symbolism beyond what she understood. They, they have no more wine. Mary wants the wedding celebration to end without embarrassment. 
But Jesus remembers the prophets had characterized the age of the Messiah as a time when wine would flow freely and abundantly. We just read Amos chapter 9. Listen again to verses 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And so here's the point. Jesus, Jesus' response that His hour had not yet come has deep eschatological implications. That is to say, it's pointing toward the end of all things, the consummation of all things, the new heavens and new earth. And so this current circumstance of a, a wedding feast having run out of wine becomes something of a living parable in which Jesus can demonstrate the kingdom age, the, the, heaven, the new heavens and new earth in a foretaste of His glory. The time of great abundance of wine was coming, but had not yet come. Nevertheless, that reality is being pointed to in the sign. Remember, signs point to something greater than themselves. And that's because Jesus, Jesus is the Messianic Bridegroom. He is the greatest of hosts who will provide the wine that is needed for His marriage banquet. And who is the bride? Who is the bride? It's the church of Jesus Christ that is their bride. And who are the guests? Well, that is us too. We are the guests invited into the feast. And unlike the bride's family in the, in the present situation, you and I will not be aggrieved. We will celebrate with great joy. And that, beloved congregation, is the point that John is making. And that is the point that Jesus is making in the sign that he performs. John wants us to see what Jesus is pointing to. The sign reveals something of the kingdom and the glory of Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, quote, As this story unfolds, Jesus graciously provides for the deficiencies of this unknown bridegroom of John 2 in anticipation of the perfect way that he himself will fill the role of the messianic bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the perfect bridegroom who will provide an abundance of wine that we may feast with Him and celebrate His glory. And so turning to the servants then, the mother of Jesus, knowing that Jesus will do something, but perhaps unsure what He will do, says, do whatever He tells you. Mary was confident that whatever Jesus was going to do, he will, he will help this blunder of wedding etiquette. It was well beyond, perhaps, what, Jesus, what Mary had likely hoped or even imagined. And so on hand, we see in verse 6, uh, tells us there were six stone jars. 
stone water jars, which were used for the Jewish rites of purification. That is to say that these water jars were for ceremonial washings. They were made from hewed stone as opposed to earthenware. Thus their substance was not made by men, as it were. They were were stones that were hewed out. Each of these jars held two or three metres or measures, which is roughly 20 to 30 gallons. And these jars were used for the washing of hands of the guests and of the utensils. Notice, too, that Jesus was not going to have the water, drawn, uh, the water that's turned into wine drawn from the drinking supply. No, it would come from these six water jars which were used for ceremonial washings. These represent the old Jewish order of law and custom, the ceremonial cleansing which Jesus was to replace with something better, the cleansing which only He can bring. The ceremonial cleansing with water the outside was to be replaced with an internal cleansing by the blood of the Lamb, represented by the newly transformed wine. Here, the replacement of the old order is being hinted at. The substance of the promises of God had come. No longer would cleansing be merely ceremonial. It would be in reality. No longer are only the hands to be cleansed, but the heart. And so Jesus told the servants to fill the jars of water, which they did, actually, it says, to the brim. They filled them to the brim. And then he instructed them to draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they did that as well. And the water which had been freshly drawn from the well was now turned to wine. Filling them to the brim indicates that the time for the ceremony of purification has now come to a completion. This new order in Christ has come. And Jesus told the servants to draw some out. The the word in in Greek, draw, is actually only used for drawing of water. So the sense is that when they drew the water out of the vessel, it kept turning into wine. All six jars, all 120 to 180 gallons of it. And this wine, freshly taken from these stone vessels, was brought to the master of the feast, that is, the master of the ceremonies, He's, this is the one who is in charge of the, of the festival, keeping everything going. And he tastes this water, now transformed into wine, and he is astounded. Where did this come from? This is amazing wine. This is the best wine. Typically, at such a feast as this, the host would serve the very best wine first and then reserve the inferior wine for toward the end of the feast. Now, the reason for this practice makes perfect sense. It's not necessarily that the guests were inebriated either, but their hearts were filled with gladness. They, they didn't care so much for whether it was good or, or inferior wine anymore. And when the steward tasted this water now become wine, he, he goes to the bridegroom about this. Jesus had made such a superior wine, superior to anything that the master of feasts had ever tasted. And so he's, he's simply amazed. He doesn't know where did this even come from. 
And, and how could the bride, bridegroom serve such a thing toward the end of the feast? Of course, we know that everything tied to the Lord Jesus Christ is, of, is superior in every respect. Even as the new covenant that he was ushering in was superior to the old. Now, chronologically, verse 11 notes that this was the first of Jesus' signs which he did at Cana in Galilee. Now, John here provides uh, an inclusio, that is, a literary device which bookends a section by repeating the same thing at both the beginning and at the end. The passage began with Cana in Galilee. It ends in the same manner, mentioning the same thing. You'll note as well that John uses the term sign, simeon. Jesus uses sign, or John rather, uses sign more than any of the other gospel writers to refer to the miracles. And these signs were used to provide proof of divine authority and majesty. These signs are not just bare displays of power, nor are they parlor tricks designed to impress the masses, but they pointed to deep spiritual realities beyond themselves, which could only be perceived with eyes of faith. And so Jesus was providing a sign which manifested his glory. John began in chapter 1, you recall, by saying that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here we see the glory of Jesus was being revealed. It would be revealed in greater measure at the cross and at his resurrection and ascension. Jesus was to be exalted, Philippians 2, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so the sign which Jesus performs in turning this water into wine points away from itself and to the one who performed it. This is actually made more clear in the context. Because who is the bride in this passage? We don't know. Who is the bridegroom? Well, he's anonymous too. Mary's relationship to the couple is not clear to us. And what is the relationship of the other disciples to the wedding party? They were invited. It's not said. As one commentator puts it, in the, in the full light of the day stands the Christ. All the rest is shadow. The sign which Jesus performs points to spiritual realities which are manifested in Christ. New life. The hope of the new heavens and new earth. The new covenant. The fulfillment of the old covenant. And so we read that Jesus manifested His glory and the disciples believed. You see, the disciples were there and they saw the sign and from that they perceived the glory of Jesus. Though they did not fully yet see the fullness of His glory. And yet they believed. That is to say, they put their faith in Christ. They trusted in Him. Some have suggested that there, are, there were seven signs which culminate in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Others link the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And so the seventh sign becomes uh, Jesus himself being raised from the dead. 
But John doesn't specifically label all of the signs, and so it's difficult to know what his intended outline is. But what is certain is this. This was the first sign given. And it links with the summary statement at the end of the book, in chapter 20. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus did this sign. He performed this sign in Canaan and Galilee, and His disciples believed. But beloved, this sign is not only for the disciples. This first sign at the wedding feast was not only for the disciples. It is for you and me as well, that you and I too might believe. And by believing, you may have life in His name. In a few minutes, we will be participating together in the Lord's Supper. And here is a meal which is pregnant with meaning. Jesus, both at this wedding feast and at the supper, points us toward our eternal hope. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are the bride of Christ. And the sign and the practice of ceremonial washings was being replaced with the wine of the kingdom of Christ. Wine, the drink of celebrations, was being served out of vessels of cleansing. And that wine also represents something, and that is the blood of Jesus, our Savior. The blood which is shed for the forgiveness of our sin. This symbol then points us to the reality, the death and resurrection of the Son of God, the the cross of Christ. And it points us forward to the last day, the the new heavens and new earth, the eternal kingdom of of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the wedding feast which you and I will enjoy, we will sup with Jesus on that last day. We will sit at the table with our Savior and our God. And what did this lack of wine at the wedding feast in Canaan have to do with Jesus? It had everything to do with Jesus. Everything. But the hour of the new kingdom had not yet come. And we still look forward to that day. The fullness of that day. And yet, Christ has given us a foretaste of that. We see that as we gather together for worship. We get a foretaste of the heavenly things as we gather together here. And we enjoy it most particularly as we share in the supper of the Lord. We enjoy a foretaste of what Christ has for us. The feast we enjoy with our Savior. The community of believers eating and drinking these token signs of feasting, the bread and the cup, We remember the work of Jesus and we rest in Him. And we look forward to the last day, the new heavens, the new earth. These things are on our mind as we eat and as we drink. And I hope that they are on your mind as we do that in a few minutes, as we eat and drink the supper. Our Savior Jesus is present with us. And we look forward to that day when we will see Him face to face. When we will sit across the table, as it were, from Him. And we will toast Him in the kingdom, His kingdom. This, beloved Christian, is your confidence. 
This is your hope. May the Lord encourage you in this today and every day as you gather and feast with our fellow believers. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for this sign, which points us to the glory of Jesus. That our Savior was pleased to turn water into wine, to perform this sign pointing to kingdom realities. That he did this not only to help a a bridegroom save face at his wedding, but he did this to point to something even greater himself. That he is the great groom, the bridegroom, who serves his people, his bride, the most superior of wine, because he has rescued her from her sin by his own blood. We thank you for our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. And to his glory, amen.